So I'm, I'm really excited to be preaching to you today. Uh, as you saw, Holly is pregnant. Um, and so this is actually going to be my last time preaching for a little while. I'm going to take a break so we can take care of the little one. Uh, so I'm really excited uh, to be up with you uh, here this morning. And we're going to continue our series in Straight Street. We are focusing on the life of Paul. Now, Paul, apart from Jesus, was arguably the most influential person uh, of the early church, or rather all of Christianity. If without God's work through Paul, Christianity today would likely look much different. And in uh, week one, Heather preached about the conversion of Saul to Paul and how awesome it is that God gives us a new identity, and I'm going to get deeper into that this morning. And then in week two, uh, Heidi preached through Acts 13 and 14 on the first missionary journey of Paul. And so this morning, I'm going to pick up in Acts 15. And as normal, I have a lot to get through, so I need to pray and get started. So let's pray. Father, thank you for our mothers. Thank you for the love and the, and the nurturing that they have given us. Thank you, uh, God, for those of, us that, those of us that had mothers that brought us up to know your word. God, what a blessing that is. And I pray for all the mothers here today that you would give them that conviction to bring their children up with the word of God. So God, I, I don't know what, what happened in everybody's week today. God, what distractions there are in this room, but I pray that you would cast them out with your spirit and that you would bring your Holy Spirit into this place with power. God, I pray that you would help us to stand on the rock that is the cross. The rock that is Jesus when all of the ground around us is sinking sand. You are the rock that never moves. And so I pray this morning that you would illuminate our eyes and our hearts to the glorious mysteries of your gospel. I pray that they would penetrate our hearts, that they would soften us. I pray that, they, we, be, that we would be receptive to your gift of grace. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when we left off last week, Paul and Barnabas had just returned from their first missionary journey to the church in Antioch. And Antioch was kind of like their home base. That's kind of where they uh, operated from. And so they returned from their first missionary journey, and the most important thing that happened on that journey was that they had brought the gospel to the Gentiles, and they had received the Holy Spirit, and they were adopted into the family of God. And the reason why this is important is because previously, most of the people that had been saved were mostly Jews with a smattering of Gentiles throughout. But this was really the first time that the Gentiles had been preached the gospel and accepted it wholesale. And they had received the Holy Spirit, and they had the Holy Spirit to prove that they were in fact saved and changed by the gospel, because as, as, it is, as it was then and as it is now, the presence of the Holy Spirit is confirmation that you are a son or a daughter of the King. And the reason why that's important is because where God is, in, is working for freedom, Satan will immediately attack with bondage. And so we pick up here in Acts 15, verse 1. It says, But some men came down from Judea, and we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is Satan's oldest tactic, taking the word of God and twisting it just enough so that it sounds right, but it will ultimately keep you from living in the full freedom of the will of God. 
And Paul and Barnabas recognize this immediately, and they confront these men from Judea that are basically telling them that, no, the Gentiles, the Gentiles have to follow the law too. That is also required for salvation. And so Paul and Barnabas get, it, Barnabas get into it with these guys. And verse 2 describes their confrontation like this. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small debate with them. Translation, these dudes were, were getting into it. They were, Paul and Barnabas were lighting these guys up. Now, I don't know if you studied uh, the writings of Paul, but he, Paul can form a pretty complex and convincing argument. He would get in your face. He could throw it down. Now, Barnabas was a Hellenist Jew, which means that he was a Greek. And I don't know if you took philosophy in high school or college, but chances are it was Greek philosophy. And so chances are Barnabas could also throw it down. And so Paul and Barnabas are getting into this knockdown, drag-out fight, this intellectual and theological battle with these men from Judea. And uh, verse 2 goes on to say that it doesn't seem like they've been getting anywhere. And so the church in Antioch decides to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to talk with the disciples and make a decision about this issue. And so they leave Antioch and they begin the 300-mile journey south to Jerusalem on foot. That's like walking from here to Fort Wayne, Indiana. That's a haul. It likely took them anywhere between two to three weeks. But what I want you to see here is in verse 3, they didn't just go straight to Jerusalem. Verse 3 says, And they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. You see, even in their hardship, even in the season of battling, even in this season of doubt where they have this confrontation with their fellow brothers in Christ, it did not stop them from ministering to the local churches on their way. Their current trial did not keep them from encouraging their fellow brothers and sisters in the goodness and grace of Jesus. You see, this struggle that Paul is going through, this battle between adherence to the law or saved by grace through faith is likely one of the most formative events in Paul's early life as a Christian. At this time, Paul's maybe been a Christian for a year or two. He's still a young Christian. So this battling is, is, is an important event in Paul's life. And you can recognize this in all of the letters that Paul wrote to the churches. In everything that Paul writes, you can recognize the theological concepts and the practical applications that came out of the season of battling. So when you're in a season of doubt, when something comes into your life that you're not sure about, if it seems like the ground around you is sinking sand and you're battling something, we often want to get out of that situation. Our gut reaction is to turn tail and run because we don't like that confrontation. We don't like that tension. Ultimately, this is most of the times cowardly and unproductive. You see, you may be missing out on something incredible that God wants to do in your life. This very moment, this battle that you are walking through may be an altar in your life. You see, in the Old Testament, what the Jews would do is whenever God would teach them something important or had some sort of miraculous provision over their lives, they would set up an altar to remember what God did, what God taught them. And so when things got shaky, when they began to doubt, when they forgot God's provision and his goodness, they would pass by that altar and remember that. Is who God is. This is what my God has done. This is what he has taught me. This is where I was and this is where he has taken me. And so by getting out of that confrontation, by bailing, you may be missing out on a life-altering, an altar-establishing moment in your life. Don't miss it. 
I got to calm down, otherwise I'm going to run out of time. <laughs> so, so we need to keep moving. So Paul and Barnabas continue on their way to Jerusalem to meet with the disciples and to make a definitive, a definitive decision on one of the most foundational issues of all of Christianity. Are we saved by adherence to the law, or are we saved by grace alone, through faith alone? And so they get to Jerusalem, they meet with the disciples and the elders, and they begin to tell them all of the things that God had done through them among the Gentiles. They tell them all the cool stories from the first missionary journey, what Heidi preached about last week. And they tell them all of these cool stories, and, and, and immediately Satan attacks. Where God is working for freedom, Satan will immediately attack with bondage. And so look at verse 5. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them, to order them to keep the law of Moses. We're going to keep moving on for verse 6 through 11. And so the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, God who knows the heart bore witness to them and by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Amen? We are saved by faith. And so what we have here is an official ruling of Peter who Jesus appointed and the other uh, apostles and disciples and elders recognized as one of the highest authorities in the early church. It was often Peter who gave definitive decisions on certain issues like this one or led the church by example, like our namesake in Acts 2.14. Peter stepped forward with the rest of the disciples. And Peter mentions here in verse 7 that he was actually the first person commissioned by God to preach to the Gentiles, and we don't have enough time for it, but you can read that story back in Acts chapter 11. And at that time, Peter dealt with the exact same people pushing the exact same issue, that the Gentiles needed to adhere to the law in order to be saved. And Peter's response, his answer at the same time, was also exactly the same, that we were, in fact, saved by faith. And so you would think that this problem would have been solved right by now, but again, where God is working for freedom, Satan will immediately attack with bondage. And so here we are, likely several years after Peter originally dealt with this issue, and we're still addressing it. And Peter finally has enough, and he says, listen, God made no distinction between the Gentiles who believed and were saved and the Jews who believed and were saved. They both received the Holy Spirit. They were both adopted into the family of God. They were both made heirs to the kingdom of heaven. And he goes even further this time because I think he's a little bit fed up right now. And he goes even further and he, and he calls out the hypocrisy of the Jews. He says, listen, we've been trying to keep this law for over a thousand years and we have still been unable to bear it. We've been trying to do this law thing for over a thousand years and we are still failing. And so what makes you think that putting this burden on the shoulders of the Gentiles is gonna produce any good? 
And he goes even further and he says, what, you better start believing that you're in fact saved by grace through faith because what makes you think that after doing the law for a thousand years, you finally figured out how to earn your salvation? So this is what Paul is saying here. He's getting into it with them. Now, it's important to remember that Paul and Peter are both devout Jews. And as we learned in week one, Paul actually used to be a Pharisee. He used to be one of these guys. And so if there was anybody that had the inclination to have the Gentiles follow the law, it was going to be Paul. Someone so devoted to the law that every waking moment was spent memorizing it and living it perfectly. If anybody was going to want the Gentiles to follow the law, it was going to be Paul. And then we have Peter. Peter has a history of being a little bit of a pushover. When a preteen slave girl can incite so much fear in you that you deny Christ, it's not that hard to believe that in this situation, under the pressure of his peers, Peter would cave. But because both of these men had experienced the love of Jesus personally, and because they had both seen what it did for the Gentiles, they fought for the transformative power of the gospel, not the facade of self-sufficiency. They fought for the transformative power of the gospel, not the facade of self-sufficiency. And they also believed Jesus when he said in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, you can have perfect rock solid theology. You can have immense knowledge and expertise, but if it's not transforming you, you're a Pharisee. Knowing the law perfectly, but not intimately. Knowing the word perfectly, but missing that the word was actually a person. John 1.1, 1, 1, for in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. Knowing the law alone doesn't work. Following a list of rules alone doesn't work. And Peter was saying that they've been trying to keep the law for a thousand years and everyone failed. And now the word itself, Jesus, God made flesh, had come to earth and he came and he said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And they're still stuck trying to fulfill a law that was already fulfilled in Jesus. Are you still stuck trying to fulfill a law that was already fulfilled in Jesus? And not only that, but they're trying to bring other people into their bondage of self-sufficiency. They're trying to require the Gentiles to follow the law. And that's ultimately what the law is, reliance on self. You see, if we are fixated as law, if we're fixated as rules being the answer, then law begets more law. In our human nature, we will ultimately infringe upon that law. This isn't a political talk. This is talking about your heart. If law is the answer, then as soon as we infringe upon that law, we will build some more laws around that law to protect us from infringing on that law. And then because we're stupid and stubborn and, and because we're imperfect, we infringe on one of those laws. And then we build some more rules and some more laws around that law to protect us from infringing on that one, and it's a vicious cycle. If law is the answer, then law begets more law. So how glorious is it that Jesus came and he shattered the cycle? He fulfilled the law, all of it. He fulfilled the law. 
Not that the law was wrong, but it was ultimately insufficient for the human problem. Christ gave us freedom from the law, not to disregard it or to minimize it, but to free us from the bondage of satisfying it. He satisfied the law for us. His desire to display his glory and mercy and grace is more valuable than our perfect adherence to the law. Why? Because even if we were able to perfectly follow the law, which we're not, but even if we were, how much is God glorified in that? How much is God glorified when we follow a list of rules? Is he not more glorified, made more merciful, more beautiful, more gracious by fulfilling the law in our place, by Jesus coming to the earth and saying, I know who you are and I know what you need. You need a new nature. You need salvation. See, God is more glorified in our accepting his grace in the gospel than our perfect adherence to the law. And so what this does is this frees us to live a life that emulates the character of Jesus rather than spend our energy following a list of rules. See, the Bible teaches that Jesus is the perfect picture of the nature of God in human form. He is literally God incarnate, the word made flesh. He is the embodiment of God in human form. And so what do you think would draw people to himself? His children living a life by a list of rules or his children living a life empowered by the person of God, the Holy Spirit, to display the character and the nature of God. Now, before you think that this means that since the law was satisfied by Jesus that you can now live life by your own rules, what Jesus is actually doing here, like most of the time when Jesus speaks, he's calling you to a higher standard. How many of you, if you really tried, if you devoted your life to it like your eternity depended on it, could follow a list of rules or at least get close? All of us could. So husbands were, well, maybe, maybe we're not good at following a list, but uh, <laughs> that was a bad joke. I'm sorry, babe. But if we really tried, we could at least get close to following a list of rules. But let me ask you this. In following that list of rules, how close are you to perfectly displaying the infinitely perfect nature of God? How close are you to displaying the infinitely perfect nature of God? You see, a life of Jesus is a far higher calling than following the law. The law says don't commit the physical act of adultery. Jesus said if you even look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her. Guilty. He's calling you to a higher standard. The sin is not just in the act of the body, it's in the eyes and the mind. The law says don't commit murder. Jesus said if you hate your brother, then you've murdered him in your heart. Guilty. He's calling you to a higher standard. The sin is not just in the act of the body, but it's born in your heart. You see, you can technically obey the law and not commit adultery. I never touched her. 
you can obey the law and not commit murder. I never stabbed him. And it's good that you obeyed the law. Obedience is good. It's good that you never stabbed him. But it does not address the real issue. The issue is your heart is broken and your strict adherence to the law will never produce any kind of righteousness in you. And this is good news. Christian, because if we as humans are hopelessly lost, if our very nature is desperate depravity, then what we need is not a list of rules, but a new nature. And a new nature does not come from the law, but the cross. There's a new nature in the cross. That produces heart transformation. That is a greater and more perfect display of the full character of God. And so through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter gives his final ruling that Christians, both Jew and Gentile, are not required to follow the law for salvation. This is one of the most important theological moments in the Christian church. And so what benefit is there from being released from the requirements of the law and living under the gospel of grace? What benefits are there from being released from the requirements to the law and being under the gospel of grace? We could literally spend an entire year of sermons worth on this, and because you'd get mad at me and fall asleep, I'm just going to do two. (laughs) So number one, under the gospel of grace, we receive the imputed righteousness of God. Under the gospel of grace, we receive the imputed righteousness of God. And these are big, confusing Christian words, but they're super important, so I need you to stick with me. Imputed means to credit or to assign something to someone. And so what we believe as Christians is that every human who has ever been born and who will ever be born is born in sin. Our very nature is sin and depravity. The Bible says that our hearts are desperately wicked. Paul says in Romans 6 that we were slaves to sin. We were slaves completely ruled and controlled by its every desire. We were slaves. But in contrast, God is holy. He is set apart from all creation. He is the epitome of perfection and glory. And so in our sin, we are separated from God by an infinite distance to his holiness. In our sinful nature, we are separated from God by an infinite distance because he is holy. And because he is truly holy, he literally cannot tolerate imperfection in his presence. Imperfection cannot exist in the presence of God. We're going to get into detail on that more in a bit. And this presents a big problem for us because unless our very nature changes, we have no hope of ever being in the presence of God. And we are subject to his wrath. We are damned to an eternity of eternal separation from his love, from his grace, from his goodness, and from his glory. And this is the state of every human. Everyone except Jesus. See, Jesus was a man, but he was also completely God. And as I said earlier, he was literally the word of God made flesh. He is God incarnate. He is the perfect picture of the nature of God in human form. 
And so God sent Jesus to die on the cross in our place, knowing that apart from a literal divine intervention that we would forever be separated from him. And so on the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath that was meant for our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you really meditate on that verse, it'll make your head hurt. Just grab the Tylenol. Jesus came to earth so he could literally become sin for us, so he could become sin in your place. All of your failures, all of your mistakes, all of your imperfections, Jesus became those. And then when he died on the cross so that through him you might become the righteousness of God, and I don't think we really understand what that means. You became the righteousness of God, not more righteous than you were, not pretty righteous, not almost perfect. You became the righteousness of God. And that cannot be described. It cannot be contained. It is infinite and perfect. You received God's righteousness. And so what happened when Jesus died on the cross is something that Martin Luther called the great exchange. When Jesus died on the cross, our sin was exchanged for his perfect righteousness. His righteousness was imputed or credited to us. And at the same time, Jesus took all of your sin and the sin of all who would accept him onto his shoulders. And in that moment, he became the worst murderer, the worst liar, the worst cheat, the most pervasive adulterer, pervert, rapist, and racist. He took all of your sin and all of my sin, and he put it on his own shoulders. And at the same time, he exchanged the totality of his perfect righteousness and set it on your shoulders. Now, despite giving us his perfect righteousness, we are still fallen. We will not be perfect, and if you're anything like me, at times you will be a spectacular failure. But because of Jesus' work on the cross, even your imperfect display of God's nature is made perfect through the blood of Jesus. And even your small imperfect victories are made perfect through the power of the Holy Spirit. So because of what Jesus did on the cross, God sees you not as you were, but who you are through the sacrifice of Jesus. Did you hear me? God sees you not as you were, but who you are through the sacrifice of Jesus. And that is good news. Through the death of Jesus, you were justified, you were made right with God, and a right relationship with God was established. And that leads us to the second benefit of living under the gospel of grace. Number two, we now have access into the presence of God. We have access into the presence of God. I want you to turn to Matthew 27, verse 51. 
So quick context for this passage. Jesus is on the cross and the great exchange has literally just happened. He has just taken all of your sin and your failures and he put them on his own shoulders and in exchange, he gave you his righteousness. And then the Bible says, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. You might say, Ike, why are you getting so excited about some curtain? It's important. The curtain that this is referring to is the curtain in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And the Holy of Holies was the place where, according to the Jews, under the old law, that the presence of God dwelled. And the presence of God under the old law, the presence of God could only be entered one day a year by one man. That was on the Day of Atonement when the high priest would offer a sacrifice for all of the sins of Israel. And so since the priest was going to be in the presence of a holy God, he started preparing himself over a week ahead of time. And throughout that week and on the Day of Atonement, he, he performed several hundred steps in ceremonies and in and other uh, duties of a priest. And he recited dozens of passages from memory, and they had to be in perfect order with perfect accuracy. And then when the time came for the priest to enter the Holy of Holies, when the time came for him to step into the presence of a holy God, they would actually tie a rope around him. Because as we've already established, God cannot tolerate imperfection in his presence. Imperfection cannot exist in the presence of a holy God. And so if the priest had made even one mistake, if he was anything short of ceremonially perfect, the moment that the, that the priest would enter into the presence of God, he would be struck dead. Imperfection cannot exist in the presence of a holy God. And ain't nobody going to go in there and get him. And so they would grab hold of the rope and they would pull his body out. See, under the law, access to the presence of God was restricted to one man, one day a year, and that may be that man's last day on earth. But the moment that Jesus died, the moment that that great exchange occurred where your sin was laid on his shoulders and his righteousness was laid on yours, at that moment, the gospel of grace was established. The gospel of grace was established. Under the old law, you would have no chance of being in the presence of God. But when Jesus died for you and your sin was removed and you received his righteousness, the barrier that separated you from him was torn. It is now gone. It is blown wide open. When your sin was removed, the barrier that separated you from him is gone. What was once restricted to one man one day a year was now open to anybody who would accept the invitation. Because of his righteousness that was imputed to you, a right relationship with him was established. And you can enter into his presence with confidence knowing that you are forgiven. 
knowing that you are perfected, knowing that you are no longer who you were, but because of the new nature that God has given you, you are who God says you are. And you can enter into his presence with confidence as a son or a daughter of the king. See, what this really is, is it's an invitation. It's an invitation to stop kidding yourself and thinking that your works and your self-sufficiency are getting you any closer to God. It's an invitation to drop all of your sins and all of your failures and all your hopeless acts for making yourself better, all your excuses of why you're not worthy. It's, it's an invitation to drop those at the feet of Jesus and accept the free gift of salvation, the very righteousness of God that's being offered to you. It's an invitation to realize that when you accept that gift, that you are now a new person. Your old self, all of your failures and mistakes, your old sinful, sinful nature died with Jesus on the cross. He put it to death. It is dead. And when you accept his gift, he gives you a new nature. It's an invitation to enter into the presence of the living and sovereign God of the universe. See, Jesus has taken away your sin. There's no longer separation. There's fellowship. And so after Peter's decision, they, disciples get together and they write a letter to the church in Antioch giving them the final decision that they are no longer under the bondage of the law and they are also no longer under the bondage of sin because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so Paul and Barnabas return to Antioch, letter in hand. They make the 300-mile journey back north. And they, when they get to Antioch, they gather everyone together and they read them the letter. And it says this in Acts 15.31. And when they read the letter, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Church, I want you to stand with me. When Paul and Barnabas read the letter, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They rejoiced in their freedom. Amen? They rejoiced because they were no longer defined by what the law says that they were. The law by its very existence predicates on the fact that there are sinners who need to follow it. But when Jesus died on the cross and you received his gift of righteousness, at that moment you were given a new nature. You were no longer a sinner in need of saving grace. You were a child. You are a son or a daughter under grace. The moment that the great exchange occurred, you were no longer a sinner in need of grace. You were given a new nature as a child, as a son or a daughter under grace. You were no longer regarded as an enemy of God. You were an heir to the throne of heaven. And so if you've made that decision to give your life to God, to accept that gift of grace that Jesus is offering to you, Satan will attack your new identity just as he did in the early church. He will try to get you to believe that God's love for you is dependent on your actions. It's dependent on your obedience. 
But Paul writes to Titus in Titus 3, 5, and he says, He saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but because of His mercy. And so today you can rebuke the enemy and rejoice in the truth. Rejoice that your identity is no longer based on the law. It's no longer based on your past actions or your future failures, but you are who God says you are. You are no longer who you were. You are who you are because of the sacrifice of Jesus. You are who God says you are. You are his son. You are his daughter. Your sin has been removed and you have been given his righteousness. And you are no longer restricted from his presence. The temple curtain was torn. And he is inviting you. He is beckoning you to approach his throne, to enter into his presence and worship at his feet. And so church, let's rejoice this morning. Let's worship this morning knowing that Jesus, the Son of God, has set us free. Amen? The Son has set us free and is by His grace that we are saved. We are chosen. We are adopted as sons and daughters of the King. You are free. Let's sing. Church, if there's one thing that I want you to remember from this morning, the song says it all. You are who God says that you are. If you've accepted that gift of grace, you are chosen, you are not forsaken. You are who God says you are. You are a Christian. You are a child of God. If you haven't made that decision in your life, if you still need Jesus, look at me right now. He is desperately in love with you. And he is beckoning you to himself. He's saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Maybe you've been trying to do it on your own, and you've recognized by now that in your own strength, you are getting nowhere. What you need is a new nature. You need an encounter with God. You need him to remove your sin and you need the imputed righteousness of God. You need a new nature. Church, I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads with me. So if you're in this room today, if you need a new nature and for the first time you realize that you're a sinner separated from a holy God and you're saying, God, I need you and I accept you in this moment, you're going to get a chance to do that in a second. And maybe there are some people in this room that you have given your life to Jesus, but you are still living in bondage to your sin. Maybe there's a stronghold that is holding you back. There's a chain that is holding you down and you need freedom. Maybe it's a cycle of sin or a pattern of decisions that you have made. Maybe it's a, a substance or a relationship and you need freedom. Or maybe you're in this room today and the season of life that you're going through right now is hard. It seems unstable. The waves are crashing over the boat and you're going and you're waving to and fro with the wind and what you need is a rock to stand on. If you're in any one of those categories, I want you to raise your hand right now. I'm going to pray for you. 
Raise your hand right now. If you need salvation, if you need direction in, a, in an unstable season of life, if you are in bondage to sin and you need freedom, I'm going to pray for you. Raise your hand right now. So, Father, you see these people. God, if there's anybody in here that needs your grace for the first time, just repeat after me. Father, I admit that I am a sinner. And I am in need of your grace, God, for the first time. I come to you and I accept the gift of righteousness that you are offering to me right now. God, give me a new nature. I've been doing it on my own. I've been trying to live by my own strength and I've been getting nowhere. And so, God, I realize that my freedom is in you. My salvation is in you. My hope is in you. And so today I choose to live for you. God, I accept your gift of grace. I believe that I am who you say that I am. I am no longer defined by my past failures or my future mistakes. I am your child. I am redeemed. I am your son. I am your daughter. And I am who you say that I am. Father, I pray for everybody in this room who needs freedom from bondage of their sin. I pray right now by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would break every chain in this moment, that every stronghold that is holding them back from the light, that you would kick it down. Every chain that is holding them to the ground, that you would break it and that they would realize that in you they are free. Their old self is dead on the cross and their new self has been raised to life in Jesus. Help them to live in that freedom. May they realize that they are who you say that they are. God, for everybody in this room who is in an unstable season of life, if there are things going on around them and they don't know the answers, if the waves are crashing over the boat and they feel like they're in sinking sand, God, place their feet on the rock that is the cross. It will not move. They are your child and you will not forsake your children. You are faithful and you are good and everything that you do in their life is for your glory and for their good. You will not forsake them. God, may they believe that they are who you say that they are. They are chosen. They are not forsaken. They are freed in the name of Jesus. We are your children. Amen.